millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate, three independent publishers, bringing you the voices and the recommendations from your favourite authors. In each episode, we'll hear about the books and the bookshops closest to these writers' hearts. I'm Anna Fielding and with me in the studio today is Matt Haig. Matt has written many books covering fiction for adults and children, memoir and factual titles. His 2015 memoir, Reasons to Stay Alive, made him a prominent voice on the topic of mental health, especially in relation to men and masculinity. Matt has started and contributed to some very important conversations on this topic and others, and his ability to convey empathy through the written word means that he's greatly trusted and loved by readers. Much of Matt's work is about examining what it means to be a human being. In his latest book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, Matt describes us all as thinking, feeling, art-making, knowledge-hungry, marvellous animals. And we'll be covering thinking, feeling and art and knowledge as we go on. But for the moment, from one marvellous animal to another, hello Matt. Hello Anna, it's very nice to be here. It's nice to chat today. Yes, yeah, it's nice to be in the air conditioning as we were just saying earlier. Absolutely, it's quite a hot day out there. So, um... Hot day outside, still is July. Your book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, has just been published. Um, it's non-fiction. I was wondering if you could talk us through the main themes. Um, yeah, well, basically, I mean, I, I didn't really plan to write Notes on a Nervous Planet. After my book, Reasons to Stay Alive, I um, had sort of, I was almost scared off writing again about um, mental illness because um, I'd, I'd been t- I did something like 50 events for Reasons to Stay Alive where I was just talking about sort of like the worst experience of my life, like a nervous breakdown in my 20s over and over again. So I sort of retreated into other stuff, other books. Um, I wrote a book about Father Christmas and a book about a 439-year-old man. And I was I was going as far away from reality as possible. But And I didn't think I had anything else to say. And I certainly didn't want to write Reasons to Stay Alive 2 or anything like that. Um, but Notes on the Planet, I, I, I started to realise that um, one of the things that was helping me as time grew on was understanding how much my own health, my mental health, is connected to how I live. And um, during this time, there was a lot of research being done into the effects of um, not just social media, but all aspects of um, how people live in our sort of ever-changing century and how rates of, at the same time rates of anxiety, particularly in, uh, among young people, millennials and younger, are rocketing, um, eating disorders, all kinds of um, different things. Um, and 
I, I just realised we're at this crisis point when, where although we're sort of vaguely aware of it, it's on the periphery of our kind of thinking, um, we're not doing enough to actually realise that mental health is as cultural as physical health. I mean, no one would argue that, um, for instance, um, there are ways about how we live that affect our physical health, whether it's... Um, eating fast food or a sedentary lifestyle or passive smoking, whatever. Or well, similarly, a yeah. lack of cholera or the invention of penicillin. <laughs> well, <laughs> indeed, exactly. It's all cultural. And a lot of the things to do with technology are great and they're great advancements, but there's also a, sometimes a psychological fallout from it. I mean, it's come up, um, I think, some of the themes you mentioned, you called the, the ever-changing century and um, the use of art and humanity as a kind of defence against that. And it mm. comes up in Notes on a Nervous Planet, the idea of disconnecting and embracing something mm. that is true and beautiful. But actually there's something, like there, there, you said you didn't want to repeat yourself. I don't think you do repeat yourself. But there are these themes that come through in your fiction mm. as well. Um, Tom, the central character in How to Stop Time, as you say, is centuries old and he has watched so many things change. But one of the things that causes him a lot of anxiety is the, the ever-increasing speed of change. Mm. And then um, you have, uh, is it Audrey in Echo Boy, which was ah, your, yeah. your teen yes. uh, science fiction novel. Um, and she has this wonderful quote, which I'm just going to try. Oh, wow. And <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever quoted Echo Boy at me, so this might be a first. Oh, well, uh, there you go. I have it. It's oh. um, a moat made of thoughts that are nothing to do with technology, she says. Oh, and right. it's her father's way of saying yeah, yeah, her yeah. defence against the robots. Yes. Um, so there are these little things that mm. come up again and again. Is it, is it something that preoccupies you a lot? I think so. I mean, I, partly because um, I'm quite addicted to technology myself. I'm, anyone who follows me on Twitter thinks, you know, who, who am I to write a book about, um, you know, t telling people there's dangers of social media. So I'm definitely not writing it from the high ground. I'm not writing it for, as someone who... Um, is living in the Himalayas, you know, disconnected and not watching Netflix. And, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm someone sort of writing it from inside the storm, as it were, and trying to work out myself, you know, how much I need these things, how much I don't need these things. I mean, I think, I think there's some positive aspects. I think if I, in 1999, when I first became ill with mental health stuff, I think it would have been quite good in some ways to have um, access to the internet because I'd have been able to understand myself better. I'd have been able to find other people on social media with similar symptoms. I, so I'm definitely not telling anyone not to um, do, do these things or change their life. It's just about being aware of how we use it. You know, it's like no one would sit, uh, recommend, um, you know, sitting in bed all day eating um, strawberry ice cream. But um, I'm not, I think everyone should eat strawberry ice cream. That's it, exactly. <laughs> that makes some kind of sense. I think what we have in um, Notes on a Nervous Planet is, I think you needed to be immersed in it, actually, because it's, as you say, it's mindfulness, and I think it, you need mm. a lot of awareness of the topic in order to write about it from the inside, because we're all inside it now. Anyone who picks up this book is in a very similar space yeah. to you. Um, so I feel that perhaps you needed to be in the eye of the storm in order to look out and be able to observe it properly. Mm, I hope, hope so, and I think I think yeah, I think the whole idea is that we're kind of all in the storm, and like you know, uh, notes on a nervous planet. The title, the nervousness, isn't just because we're all nervous; it's because the planet itself is so connected now. Even back in the nineteenth century, when we had the first sort of transatlantic telegraph cables under the Atlantic Ocean, um, the guy who put them there talked about the world's um, nervous system. 
and now that nervous system has obviously evolved to an extent that where it's almost like we're acting like individual neurons within the big sort of hive brain um which can be great and it can can create all kinds of wonderful change in the world but at the same time it can on an individual level cause all kinds of stress as well it's a really interesting metaphor that you go into with that when it's almost like the world's nervous system is developing and growing its own brain and then only a few steps away from the singularity, which you also mentioned. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's you know collective psychology, and how even if like you even like sometimes I'll be arguing with someone, and I, I'm thinking I'm arguing with someone who's the opposite of me, who's got the opposing political views, but actually emotionally, psychologically, we'll be mirroring each other, and we'll be feeling the same tightness in our chest and anger at the keyboard and stuff, and probably from the aliens' cosmic perspective, they're seeing just this hot, angry energy. Um, coming from our technology. Lighting know. up at different <laughs> points is the... Um... Yes. No, I can see that. Now, you told The Guardian in an interview last year that um, books were a safe space for the mind, getting off technology for a second. Mm-hmm. I wondered if you could expand on that. Um, yeah, I think... Well, it was a literal thing here, because like when I've been at my most anxious or most depressed, um, one of the only sort of cultural forms that's been available to me in those states has been books because even I can remember being um, ill with panic disorder and even if it was sort of evening time and I'd be reading a magazine that would interfere with my sleep it'd be overstimulating my brain when you're in that sort of state of deep deep sort of sensitivity um but I feel like now we're so bombarded from all sides with um marketing messages instagram um lives that we're not living and everything's sort of overloaded I feel like books because they're they're technology, but they're a 5,000-year-old technology. They're, they're a kind of retreat from that just in themselves. So I'm not saying they're not intense things. I'm saying they're deeply intense things, but they're intense in a way that is different to the um, instant sort of disposable nature of a lot of um, social media and stuff. It's true, actually. When you're really immersed in something, you do go into that kind of almost limbic state where you can kind of see what's happening and, and yeah. it pulls your brain into a different sort of set of patterns, doesn't yes, it? Yes, definitely. And I, I, I'm actually a big fan of, like, white space. On, 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 you know, I think there's just something calming about, especially a real... I, I, I don't want to be one of those people who just talk about the smell of books or anything, but just the real physical physicality of a book. There's something um, tactile and comforting about it. So talking of physical books, um, for every Read Like a Writer podcast, we ask our guests to choose a selection of their favourite books and from one of their favourite independent bookshops. Now, Matt, you've chosen City Books in Brighton, which is the city you live in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I take it you visit a lot. I do. I live uh, literally, um, well, probably I can get there in less than 10 minutes. Um, It's closer to our old house, but we've just moved a bit further up the hill. But yes, City Books is on Western Road in Brighton. I think technically it's over the border into Hove, um, but it, it, it's sort of between Hove and Brighton. And for those people who know Brighton, probably know that Western Road isn't necessarily the best or calmest um, shopping street in the world. It's quite a sort of chaotic, um, messy, average urban shopping street, really. But City Books almost acts like a book itself because it is a kind of retreat from the sort of craziness of the stuff around it. And, um, yeah, it's quite quite a relatively small shop, but it's stacked with books. I've got so so much there. Um, fiction, non-fiction, children's adults, and um, they do lots of events as well. And I've done events not there inside the shop, 
Um, I think I've done a signing inside the shop, but they 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 they're very innovative in the venues they use around Brighton. Um, I did one in the Rope Tackle Art Centre, which is just down the road in Shoreham. Um, they've done one with Caroline Lucas, I think, in the Brighton Dome. And, you know, so so they, they, they've got big sort of grand ambitions, but they operate out of this lovely, um, lovely little um, bookshop, which is chaotic in a sort of very lovable way. So walk me through your typical trip to City Books. What happens okay. when you walk in the door? Well, you're, I think I think well, as soon as you walk in, I think the bell goes on the door, and then you've got the um, cash register and the people, the friendly, very friendly people behind the desk as you walk in. So you're instantly greeted. You, it's the kind of shop that you 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 can't really go to without ending up in a nice conversation about books. And um, there's always people in there, often children on the floor reading a book. But it's very sort of wall to wall. Um, probably about 10 rows of um, shelves, 10 um, all around. And um, I'm thinking the children's book section is at the back of the store and they've always got lovely sort of full window displays as well. And they do nice Christmas events um, where they get a local author because obviously in Brighton you've got quite a lot of local authors there. Spoke for choice down there, really, have got aren't quite you? a few, <laughs> lots of children's book people and illustrators and stuff. And, you know, they'll get the um, sherry out and mince pies and stuff. And, yeah, it's just a really, really nice... I mean, there's quite a few... We're, we're spoilt, really, in this country with independence because although independence have had a, had a tough time over the last 10 years, I think so many of them have upped their game and really fought for their sort of space in the market. And... Um, yeah, there are always the events I enjoy most when, when you do it in conjunction with an independent store like City Books, yeah. So I'm talking about uh, independent bookshops. We're going on to independent thought because of the three books you chose today, and we were just talking about this before. What I found really striking about all of them, although they're all quite different, is that they're all very much staking a claim for independent thought in very different ways. Yeah. Um, I thought we could start with... Uh, the one that I used to own myself as a Lion's mm. Teen Track imprint copy. Oh, wow. uh, but it's also the youngest writer and the oldest book of them all. The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton was published in 1967 when the author was just 18. Um, Matt, could you explain to us, for those who haven't read it, what the book's about? Yes, OK. The Outsiders is set in, I think, the 1960s in Oklahoma. It's about a gang of kids from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, they're collectively uh, known as greasers. Um, it's quite a derogative term because they're the poor kids. A lot of them haven't got parents, and but they're kind of like band of brothers. And um, yeah, the interesting thing is, like S.E. Hinton, I didn't know if that was a, a man or a woman or who was writing that when I read it, but she was a 19-year-old, so she was a teenage girl. But I had never felt as un understood as a sort of teenage boy uh, at all in any film or song or anything as I had done in this book. And I, even though I didn't grow up in the 1960s, I grew up in the 1980s in the East Midlands, so a kind of world away from 1960s Oklahoma, it still it just is the essence of um, teenageness in it. I mean, there is, there's various things going on in the story, but for me, it's just the characterization. All the, all the kids in it have um, strange names, like the narrator is Ponyboy Curtis, and there's also um, his brothers are Soda Pop and Dallas, and um, the sort of love interest is called Cherry Valance, and all the names sort of drip with this sort of poetry, and it's a book. Although they're sort of a teenage gang of boys who get into fights with the um, rich kids known as the Socias, um, 
There are also boys who fall in love, who like poetry, who stare at sunsets, who who who, who reference Robert Graves, and it's just a really sort of romantic kind of mix of I don't know something like West Side Story or um, Catcher in the Rye, but with more heart. And it was just—it's not like the best. You know, when I go back to it now, it's definitely not the best written book in the world. But it was definitely the book that switched a light on in my brain and made me realise what books. Um, could be because up until that point I suppose I read it when I was about 12, 12, 13 and I had enjoyed books before that I'd enjoyed people like Roald Dahl and all kinds of different authors but I think this was the first one that realised that books weren't necessarily there to advance you or to um, do you good in the sort of teacherly sense they could be another form of entertainment. They could be as thrilling as a, a computer game, as a rock song, as um, any film out there. Um, they could be a comfort to you. I think it's no coincidence that I read it when I was having an unhappy time at school as well. Um, and it was, it was definitely one of those comfort reads. And when I was 24... Um, over a decade later, when I was sort of in the midst of recovering from a nervous breakdown, um, it was one of the books that was on my um, bedroom shelf in my because I was back living in Newark on Trent with my parents, um, no access to a bookshop or anything, and so I had all my old childhood books, and it was the one I sort of pulled off the shelf a lot, and because I knew it so well, there was such a comfort in it, and. Um, I can even remember the first sentence and I'm really, I'm not one of those people who can remember sentences or quotes very well and it's as I walked out of um, the movie theatre I had two things on my mind, Paul Newman and Ride Home and I, I feel like that captures the essence of it for me just in that one sentence because it's kids with one eyes, one eye on the stars and half stuck in the sort of reality of the, where they are and um, yeah it's just a beautiful beautiful book and um, I, you know when you have one of your favourite books you, you, you kind of forget that the author's a real person and then I saw you know the other week Essie Hinton's on Twitter I thought how could that be she's sort of it's <laughs> part of mythology I didn't realise but yeah and she wrote lots of other books which I also like um, there was a sort of sequence where uh, I think it's called Tex and Rumblefish which was made into a great film. Rumblefish um, was another one on my bookshelf as yeah. well. <laughs> and um, that was then, this is now, that was the third one. But no, uh, The Outsiders was one I always mention. I think because, you know, it's the ultimate out, outsider book. And it was it was also YA before there was such a thing as YA, before we had, you know, that as a sort of marketing category. The Outsiders was just such a purely, authentically um, teenage book not just in its subject matter, but just the way it's written and in spirit. And yeah. That's great. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now your nonfiction choice is uh, Cosmos by the American popular scientist Carl Sagan. Um, for listeners who may not have come across Carl before, could you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, well, Carl Sagan, I suppose the simple way to describe it, he was basically like the Brian Cox of the 1980s. He was American. He did. He was a, a, an incredibly intelligent man who managed to popularise um, science and physics um, and make it accessible to people who don't think of themselves necessarily as interested in that subject. As well as writing non-fiction, he also wrote fiction. He um, wrote a lot of science fiction. He wrote Contact, which was turned into a film with Jodie Foster. And um, I think the first thing that sort of appealed to me, because uh, when you're sort of a teenage boy and you're um, actually it was a bit older than teenage, early 20s, um, and you're sort of still fascinated about aliens and all those sort of things. He actually but you mean did. you've given up being fascinated no, by aliens? No, I, 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 I am still very fascinated. But um, he, he, was the, he, he was the person who, you know, turned science, instead of, instead of this sort of dry subject which had all the answers, it turned it into a kind of romantic subject which had all the questions. And I'm someone who was terrible at science. I, I grew up, uh, as the education system kind of makes you, um, thinking... You know, you have to be a science person or an arts person. And I definitely grew up thinking I was an arts person. You know, going back to West Side Story, like there's two gangs, the arts people versus the science people. And, you know, I'll embarrass myself now, but I got an F in GCSE science. And I think it's probably because I was like an hour late to the exam, but also... I mean, that I, I would probably saying, contribute, yeah. That would contribute. <laughs> And, yeah, I got mainly A's, but then I've got this big glaring F on my um, GCSEs. And uh, so so that just underlined it, that I'm absolutely stubbornly not a scientific person. And um, I, ha I think I did have the world's worst um, science teachers, which put me off. So it was quite a few years after that that I first encountered Cosmos and realised, actually, um, everyone's a science person. They just don't quite realize it and it, it's one of those books that you read and it's about everything from the possibility of alien life formation of black holes it's got ancient civilizations in there we're talking about um uh egyptian hieroglyphics and 
ancient cultures um, understanding of the universe, ancient Mesopotamia, all kinds of things. It's a life, the universe and everything kind of book. It's, but it feels like a breeze to read because it's so accessible with prose. So it's one of those books where you, it doesn't feel like hard work, yet by the end of it you feel like you're twice as intelligent as you were going in. Um, this is what I really liked when I was looking at a lot of Sagan's work, actually, is that his real passion for the, 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 the thought that ideas and intelligence, they're for everybody. They're not locked no, away. They're absolutely. not in ivory towers. They're not for an elite. And um, I've seen him you know, in recorded interviews say that, you know, you should never tell children it's a stupid mm. question. But I think a book like Cosmos is about, as you say, unlocking it for people who believe that science isn't for them. Yes, no, totally. And uh, he's also, I find him... I talk about every, I get annoyed with myself talking about everyone as a therapeutic writer because I don't really know what that means. But I think there is a kind of like therapy in making yourself feel small. And he's a great writer. It, it, reading Carl Sagan is almost like the equivalent of looking at the sky. You kind of get your sense of a place in time and space very easily. And um, yeah, it, it, I, it's one of those that you can dip into at any place as well, which I always like. So you don't have to start at the beginning. You can sort of pick it up anywhere. And I've seen the TV series as well. And the TV series was great and iconic sort of 1980s show. But this has, you know, it must be about 200,000 words long. It's got so much in there. It's brilliant. I really like that description of um, reading him as being like looking at the sky. Um, on to uh, slightly slightly more fictional cities, to put it mildly, <laughs> uh, more fictional landscapes. Uh, your third choice is Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, uh, which is a conversation between, largely, between the explorer Marco Polo and uh, Kublai Khan, who is the fifth great Khan of the Mongol Empire, I discovered. <laughs> um, but uh, Polo's describing these 55 cities that he's visited as an explorer, but the book's really a lot more complicated than that, isn't it, in terms of its structure? Yes, it's, it is. Um, it, there's a lot of dialogue between um, Kublai Khan and um, Marco Polo. Uh, but, and then you've also got um, each of the cities described. But the cities are weaved around themes, uh, themes of sort of place and space and uh, love and stuff. But e e each city, you don't realise it um, necessarily on a first reading, but e each city is basically a kind of hallucinatory, um, surreal version of Venice. It's, each, each city is a kind of um, magical, realist um, look at Venice. And what I love about this, but there's so many things I love about it, but A, I love the fact, and I, I'm, I'm almost addicted to writers who um, write in a sort of short form, lots of white space around it. Each... Um, city is so beautifully described, even in the translated versions, um, because I haven't read the Italian, because I don't read Italian. Um, Good reason. <laughs> and it feels like you're sort of reading a dream. Um, uh, I, I picked it up recently because um, I, I don't, I, 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 it's one of those books I picked up re recently, and I, I was quite kind of shocked to realize that one of the one of these sort of beautiful, fantastical um, cities is called Melania. <laughs> and I was thinking, that's quite interesting thing to read in 2018. <laughs> but it was one where, actually, the city of Melania is the one where everyone dies at a young age of ignorance, which I thought was kind of fitting for now. But there's, there's something you get out of it, wherever you reread it, because he's actually... Even though there's no kind of narrative form as such, there's no beginning, middle and end, there's no plot or character development or any of that. Um, within 
each city, if you understand it like a poem, you can get different kinds of um, meaning and we weave things out and they sort of join together. And from, from the reason I chose it for this podcast is, I mean, I like a lot of Italo Calvino stuff and Invisible Cities is the uber example. Um, it's just taught me that a book doesn't have to be anything. There's no obligation of what a book can be. It can be fiction, it can be non-fiction, it can be something in between, it can be totally surreal, it can have a plot, it doesn't have to have a plot, it can have as many characters as you can choose, it can it can be historical, but then it can pour lots of fiction and surrealism onto that history and you can kind of, you're only limited by the walls of your imagination and it, it's one of those books that as a writer if I've got writer's block I'll just dip into and go to page 79 or whatever fantastical city is on there read this often it reads like science fiction but read this poetic description of a, a city and its people and um, it's one of those ones that I just think oh yeah I can take that extra leap and do that extra brave thing with the writing because um, Italo Calvino has gone there before it's actually interesting because obviously he's got two people who were real in Marco Polo and Kubla Khan. And I think you were saying, I remember reading something you said about how to stop time, which obviously spans centuries. Um, you know, the first thing you would not do in a creative writing class is be told to have your character meet William Shakespeare. And yet Tom yeah. does, and he meets Fitzgerald and several other people. He's involved in the Spanish Civil War and all sorts of things. So was that something that allowed you to take that jump into that part of your fiction? Was it was this the yeah, inspiration? definitely. Because like, when I write How to Stop Time, as well as sort of like going through different time periods, he goes to a lot of different places. And I just, it was very freeing to know that you, you don't have to be that true um, to the present or the past, or any particular place, you, it can just be your dream version of everything. I think, you know, there's a certain type of historical novel which has to be... Um, I think I think the readers w w would feel like they've been sort of shortchanged if it wasn't um, authentic and, you know, full of uh, uh, authentic dialogue and settings and sense and everything. And um, But m my approach to writing about history is to um, use history as a sort of springboard into imagination. So you use history, real stuff, um, where it's useful or where it's fun. Like, for instance, in How to Stop Time, I um, talk about how um, all the children in Shakespearean England drink beer because it's safer to drink than water. That's an interesting fact. That seems beyond what you'd imagine. And um, so history's there you know to pick but i sort of plunder it as a um novelist and don't necessarily respect it always sometimes you get to a larger truth by doing that don't you rather than uh... and also uh, like, like with, with if a book's set over say 500 years i think if you were literally totally authentic to the way people spoke in every era it become almost that would be more distracting than a bit of artistic license. So you sometimes do that thing that they have in films and TV where you just go with what sounds right. You don't have anyone in the 1600s, um, you know, saying LOL or talking about <laughs> Snapchat. Um, slightly off-piste question and going back to Italo Calvino. If you could visit any of the cities, which would you go to? I'm assuming not Melania. Um, oh, goodness. Um, not Melania. Um, there's one, I think, called Venetia, which is um, towards the end, which 
all the rules of gravity don't apply and um you know it's almost like that painting um um not what bosch like Hieronymus Bosch where the sort of staircases go on for everything and it's just like it's him at his most sort of imaginative where all the rules are broken and even gravity doesn't apply and everyone's wishes come true but a lot of the cities you wouldn't want to go to because he's sort of making these sort of nightmarish um statements about things and his own sort of um claustrophobia but actually I I I it's made me when every time I talk about it or think about it it's made me actually want to go back to Venice and I'm I'm thinking of um dragging our children to Venice because we've always we've been resisting going to um cities with our children but I think now they're 10 and 9 we're going to um get an easy jet to Venice that sounds lovely. <laughs> uh, for those of our listeners who really do want to read like a writer, um, talking about more about your reading during your writing process, what books do you borrow from? Well, there's certainly, definitely, certainly authors that I'm I, I, I'm always drawn to and influenced by. Um, or I don't know if it's because I'm a Yorkshire person, but all of the Brontes I are my sort of go-to classics even Anne um, I love the Tenant of Welfare Hall oh don't uh, say even Anne like that poor no, Anne I know <laughs> well yeah I you know she is she is a bit neglected in the old canon but I, I feel like she's the hipster Bronte she's the hipster Bronte absolutely the first album yeah yeah Jane Eyre Fiat obviously from Charlotte and um, Wuthering Heights of course and the poems of Emily Bronte, and um, yeah, just for their sheer um, romantic, quite individualistic, I suppose, but uh, intensity, you know, the intensity, the power of writing. Um, you know, we talked earlier about um, books being a sort of retreat and a safe space, but th- those books, you can almost feel the sort of hurricane coming off from their sort of outwardly quiet appearance and demeanour, and then these sort of works of absolute... Um, forces of nature so the Brontes but also um, Graham Greene is another writer who I've always um, well I studied him at university and I was literally the only person who took the Graham Greene module in my master's degree and it was just me and the the tutor didn't really like me very much I could sense it through the course and he, he he I, I thought I, I wrote the best essay I've ever written and he gave me 69%, um, which was just one less from being, you know, whatever you, you get, distinction. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't bring that grudge up. but um, I like it. I, there's nothing like a no, long-held grudge. Gra- Gra- Graham Greene. Graham Greene is a good he, man for a long-held grudge he, as well. He, he's, although a lot of his books are sort of miserable and about sort of uh, Catholic guilt and all of that, um, I just like his style, you know, it's his style that's drawn to me. Like, he was great at comparing solid real-world things with abstract things. Like, there's a, a line, um, I think it's in The Power and the Glory, which is, um, he drank the whiskey down like damnation. And just suddenly, just comparing, you know, t- turns the simple act of drinking into something sort of universal and um, spiritual. And, uh, yeah, just, again, it's a sheer sort of power of writing. Uh, we've been talking about the books that you recommend to adult readers. What's the book that you enjoy reading most to your children? Ah, good question. I recently read Boy by Roald Dahl, which was, which was very good as an adult reading it to them because um, our children are very... Um, they've been brought up in a very sort of soft, liberal, kind of Brighton way. They're homeschooled 
they've got it quite good. Um, and so reading something like Boy, which was obviously about Roald Dahl's experience of his sort of private school where, boarding school where he, you know, where the kids were basically tortured, you know, they were beaten and everything else. It put the fear of God into our children and they, they suddenly, oh, yes, we're really grateful that you're not like that. Um, um, no, what else? Um, well, my daughter just loves everything with animals in it. So she's reading, her, her favourite author is um, Megan Ricks, who, who writes these great um, stories, uh, often in historical settings, but with animals as the way into the story. And I forget the title now, but there's one um, set in the Great Fire of London, I think, with dogs maybe in the Great Fire of London. But um, that was fun. And um, we also recently read Spike Milligan's poetry to them, and they enjoyed that a lot. Um, Oh, all all kinds of people. Uh, the um, Liz Pichon books, the um, Tom Gates, um, they're also big in our household. So, uh, yes, I basically can't choose. Uh, children's books for me are the ultimate um, fiction. I mean, I love writing for children uh, because I think children are the best readers. I think, um, you know, we talk about what you can't write in a children's book, but actually I think writing for children and reading children's books is often more freeing because children's imaginations are just willing to go anywhere. Do you find it very different writing for children from writing for adults? Um, every book's different to each other. So you're definitely aware when you're writing a children's book that it is, it is for a certain age group or whatever. But I feel like actually writing for children made me a better writer for adults because I think it's going back to that thing I was saying in Invisible Cities about having... Um, that freedom is all you want as a writer and reader I think is freedom um, you know freedom that you don't always necessarily get in reality and it, it, writing for children gave me that freedom to just go with the fantasy to go with whatever is most interesting to you at that certain point in time so um, yeah it, it definitely you know when I write for adults now I almost forget that they're adults and just sort of see them as older slightly uglier versions of children well we're keeping away from both your own children and hopefully from a surprise trip to venice um because today's also your birthday as well isn't it it is yes Happy speaking birthday. of getting older yes 43 years old i know it's it's kind of i know i'm okay with it i'm actually one of the things i realized researching notes on a nervous planet is that worrying about getting older is a sign that you're young because there's a lot of research now, but actually the people who worry most about ageing are in their 20s. And the older you get, the more resigned to it. So I'm, try I'm, I'm sort of trying to stay worried about it because that means I'm young. Well, a... yeah, I'm about the same age as you and I'm still worrying. So we're in it together, I think, at the moment. Um, well, happy birthday. And I hope thank the rest you, of the day Anna. is brilliant for you. Um, and thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate that it. That was a pleasure. Both. Um, Matt Haig's Notes on a Nervous Planet is out now and published by Canongate. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canongate and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash read like a writer. And we'd love to hear what you have to say too. So do tweet us at readlikeapod.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.